Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast for the week of November 17th or thereabouts. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Joined again today by Josh Blank, research director for the Texas Politics Project. And we have big political news in Texas this week. <gasps> News in quotation marks, sort of. Although, you know, I mean, look, you have to call it news because... Did something happen? Yeah, you know, you may have... There's this guy. You may have heard of him. What? He was a former congressman who who ran for U.S. Senate. His name is Beto O'Rourke. Oh, he's a cheeky nickname. And he um, is now going to run for the Democratic nomination for governor. Oh, this was the guy who we were talking about and waiting to run for like the last... Very long time. Very long. Okay, that yes. guy. Yes. Okay, so okay. We'll, we'll, we should play okay. straight. Okay, okay. So, well, yes. So, the, you know, uh, Better work made his much-anticipated announcement that he is, in fact, running for, for governor. And, I mean, I think we joked, I think we joked last week, or maybe it was some other venue about, yeah. you know, hey, have you heard Beto? You know, he's going to announce Monday. Well, this Monday he finally announced. He finally did it. He finally did it. And so, you know, the political news in Texas this week has been dominated more or less by this announcement and and political, I should say, political news in Texas and and after weeks of other kinds of news coming out of Texas, this has been the big national story out of the state more or less this week. So, yeah, you know, it's 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 you know, game on. I mean, in retrospect, and you know, we've talked about this on on in this venue and others before, quite a lot. So there's no point rehashing. I mean, this is you know not only not super surprising at this point, given that the O'Rourke campaign was sending out signals for the last couple of weeks that well, this and, was going to happen. And it basically cleared the field with right. whatever indications he was giving in the background, right? So there was that. Right. And, and had given, you know, and was in a position where, you know, I don't want to say he had to, but I by waiting as long as he did in terms of clearing the field, as you say, you know... Was going to be up for a, an enormous amount of criticism that I think would have dented his brand pretty pretty seriously, had he said, "Oh, you know, I've just decided this isn't for me in November." Yeah, nobody. I mean, nobody has to run for office. In fact, right. there's probably a lot of people who shouldn't run for office who still do. But yeah, I mean, but in would, this case, he would have been he would have been heavily blamed for whatever the Democratic outcome was, you know, in sort of the election postmortems down the line, you know, had he not run. Right. So. Right. So we've done a, a post on the Texas Politics Project website, texaspolitics.utexas.edu. Go to the follow the blog link there. Um, you know, and that post rounds up a lot of polling data the way we've obviously polled quite a bit uh, on Better O'Rourke when he was running for Senate in 2018. Uh, then when he jumped in the presidential race, a matter of, you know, great attention now, particularly from his opponents uh, in 2020, and then had checked in, I think, here and there, you yeah. know, um, 
you know, we didn't want to put him in the race before he put himself in the race, although in the October UT Texas Tribune poll, we had to. I mean, really. I mean, he by then the signals were pretty clear he was right. going to do it. So so we've got a lot of data. So why don't we like run through just some of the highlights of that, most of which is in the blog post. Yeah, let's just hit it real quick. So, you know, we did a hypothetical head-to-head matchup between Abbott and O'Rourke. Again, I mean, just if, if, if our orientation towards these sorts of things isn't, you know, clear, just caveats. It is super early. There's a campaign to take place. Neither are the nominee for their party yet at this point. So this is just checking in. Where are we? And because of that, we ask it among all registered voters because in our view, there is no such thing is a likely voter electorate at this point. Anyway, in that matchup, uh, Abbott led O'Rourke 46% to 37%. About 7% said, you know, someone else, and about 10% said they hadn't thought about enough to have an opinion. One quick reaction to that might be, oh, the incumbent governor is under 50%. He said, yeah, but if you take out sort of the people who have no opinion on this race yet, which is kind of crazy, if you pay attention to politics and you're going to turn out, you probably have a view of the governor, you likely have a view of O'Rourke. So if you're someone who's kind of outside this, you might not be that committed to voting if you sort of take them out and reduce the denominator. You know, Abbott's above 50%. Ultimately, it's a, you know, it's a nine-point lead. Uh, you know, we can talk about that a little bit. We'll just run through some of these other stuff real quick. Abbott led among white Texans 58% to 31%. O'Rourke led among uh, African-American Texans with an opinion 54 to 13 45 to 33 among Latinos. Abbott led among men, which is very unsurprising in Texas given differences in party you know, identification by gender, 52 to 36. And had, had a much narrower 42 to 38% lead among women. Um, you know, among suburbanites and other, you know, which is going to be a big part of where the conflict takes place in the election. A lot of the focus is going to be Abbott led O'Rourke 47% to 36%. You know, this is probably the thing that sort of, I think, is hanging out there the most probably. You know, only 35% of Texas voters viewed O'Rourke favorably, 20% very favorably, compared to 50% who viewed him unfavorably, with 44% viewing him very unfavorably. Now, obviously, that's being driven by Republicans, right? So 80% of Republicans view him unfavorably. You know, Democratic views are, you know, not surprisingly very favorable, but less intense than Republicans views. And we see this all the time. I mean, we see this, you know, sure. if we look at Abbott, you know, Democratic views of Abbott are extremely negative and intense. Republican views are positive, but less intensely positive. It's just sort of the nature of, of these sorts of evaluations. Um, you know, I think something we're going to talk about a lot, and you already kind of hinted at it last week, I assume we're going to do this in the next couple of weeks, is the importance of probably independence in this race. As Texas right. gets more competitive, I think as both parties are turning towards really, you know, focusing on turnout of their partisans first and foremost in these elections, you know, sort of the way independence break is going to be interesting. And it's important because neither Abbott nor O'Rourke are very well liked among independents at this point. O'Rourke is deep, you know, deeply underwater. Uh, only 22% view him favorably, 48% view him unfavorably. Uh, among Abbott, when we ask about his job approval among independents in the same October poll, 27% approved, 57% disapproved. So net negative 30 compared to O'Rourke's net negative 26. So that's the state of play we find ourselves in right now going right. to this race. And, I, you know, I think you look at those numbers and, you know, I think I said something on Twitter last week about, you know, 2022 looking like a very long year. Now I think <laughs> this is related to something else we're going to talk about uh, a little later on in, in this podcast, which is the announcement of Ryan Guillen changing parties. But that it was in response to something like that. But when I look at these numbers, what I see is, you know, obviously another mobilization election for Republicans and Democrats. You know, these, neither of these candidates are unknown to either their partisans or uh, the, their opponents or the, you know, the, the members of the opposite party. There's already a wellspring of negative impressions for 
uh, each of those campaigns to reinforce. Which they're already doing. Which they're already doing in order to channel negative partisanship and to help their own mobilization efforts. And to raise money. And then we also have a, you know, this, you know, then this bit about independence, I think also presages a pretty negative tone to the campaign throughout, given that you know, it's likely that campaigns will be looking at the negatives among independents who are they going to they are going to see as, you know, a relatively narrow band of potentially persuadable potential voters. Right. You know, given independent patterns of turnout, particularly in an off year election, you know, all of this sort of adds up to a campaign that is already pretty nasty, you know, and, and to be fair right now, particularly on the Republican side, I mean. You know, I mean, sure, Republicans could say, well, Beto O'Rourke is not being especially nice, but, you know, the, the Republic, you know, the early Republican attack ads have been pretty, have been pretty tough. And yeah. I don't doubt that I there mean, will be, you know, and look, I guess if you're a Republican and you read, I, I don't know, I, I assume you read uh, uh, Jonathan Tylove's interview with O'Rourke for Texas Monthly. And, you know, I mean, if you're a Republican, you could say, hey, look, Beto O'Rourke is going out and blaming Greg Abbott for the COVID deaths, for the blackout deaths. That's a, it's a, it's a pretty hard, those are pretty hard punches for complex social phenomenon, one might say. Yeah. I think, I mean, the thing that I think is troubling you, you started this by talking about how long a year 2022 is going to be, and we're not even there yet. And that, and that's the thing I think is- <laughs> It already know, feels long and we've not, we've not completed a calendar day. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, you know, I'd say is it's, it's unfortunate because it's so clearly like, it's so clearly just systemic in the sense that you know, before O'Rourke got in, and regardless of whether the candidate was O'Rourke or or whomever, you know, it was it was pretty obvious that that Abbott was going to paint you know whoever this person is is just you know basically a demo you know some socialist who's going to you know run Texas into the ground in some right. kind of way. And like, in, in conjunction with Joe Biden, in conjunction well known, with Joe well known Biden, socialist, right? Exactly, and Bernie Sanders and AOC and and the right. Green New Deal and blah, you know, and, all, and so like this is fine, this is fine. Yeah, I mean, again, we watch this stuff. That's that's you know to be expected. Um, you know, I mean, it was, but it was also clear also that O'Rourke was, you know, part of the whole rationale for any Democrat really getting into a race that's going to be in a tough year nationally for Democrats, given right. you know, Biden's approval numbers, Democrat in the White House, all that stuff is going to be relying on exactly these issues, right? And we'll get to that in a second. But, you know, the, 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 the response of the pandemic, the, you know, the failure of the grid, those kinds of things. And so the thing that I think is just seems so, you know, kind of, tough about it is when they're talking about, you know, the, the contrast between O'Rourke jumping in 2018 versus Cruz right now, and the immediate contrast to today is that he's going out and, he, you know, whereas before he was introducing himself, he was being, you know, I'm better, I'm outside all this. And, you know, that's part of the attraction, right? With, right. you know, I think usually for people and, you know, I'm not attacking Ted Cruz, partially because like, I don't need to do that, right? Was at least some of the underlying assumption. This time it's clear that's not the playbook. I mean, just from go. And that's why when you think about how this is going to be, it's going to be nasty. It's going to be long. And, uh, you know, I mean, I guess I'm looking forward to it because I like to watch these things, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've not ginned up a looking forward to it kind of <laughs> kind of attitude yet. I guess I guess it'll come. I mean, you know, I mean, I think that's right. And I think that, um, you know, I mean, there's such an air of inevitability to, to all of this right now mm -hmm. as we're in this transition period. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's dampening my enthusiasm. It's like, yes, of course. Right. In the end, you know, better work got in because who else did the Democrats have? Mm -hmm. And as we were saying, I mean, I think once he got past a certain point, it was just going to be too damaging. And we should mention, I mean, I, you know, I've been making a, 
ideal about the weight, which I think is harmful. And I think that, you know, foregoes a strategy. I think we talked about it last week that would have or week before that would have been helpful for Democrats overall. Yeah, I agree. You know, in terms of, you know, Jeff Blaylock in his his, uh, Texas election news mailing pointed out that, you know, there's only a couple of candidates of the last several Democrats that got in earlier Mm -hmm. in the gubernatorial race. Which is, on one hand, a fair point, but also might actually make the point that there might have been more benefit to getting in earlier, especially since, as I think we've, again, as we've discussed on here before, the most successful top of the ticket race that the Democrats have seen was when Bitter got in very early against Cruz. And one could say, well, he didn't announce until X date. The moment he and, you know, Will Hurd, you know, switched on their Instagram or whatever it was right. they were using to stream as they were driving across country. Well, and I think there was a move going on. Well, I mean, you know, to that to the to the Blaylock point, which I you know, and I agree with, and I, I agree with the general like sort of the missed opportunity piece of this. But I'd also say, you know, yeah, Wendy Davis didn't formally announce her can- campaign until later in the summer, but it was clear to everybody like around town and in the space that she was running. I mean, that was that was. Yeah, I I recall that being known pretty far before the actual well, official announcement. Y- yeah, I honestly you may be misremembering that just yeah. because she was still and I just I sort of remember yeah. having yeah. direct conversations, you know, wow. into the fall. I mean, she didn't really I don't or or into the the very late summer and you know, there was a there was I, I would say this, there was much less of an air of inevitability about that. And, and the timing was, you know, was er, uh, earlier, I'm trying to remember, I guess it was late August when she declared maybe September. Yeah. yeah that's what I was thinking. Yeah. And, and I think that it took a, you know, it, she gave it a lot of consideration. Well, sure. Well, yeah. yeah. Anyway, I mean, we don't need to read, let's not rehash that right yeah. now. <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, I guess the question then becomes, you know, in terms of, I mean, I was thinking about this other idea of, you know, are you excited about this or not? It's like, you know, and part of it, I guess, is, you know, the questions that I think I'm getting a lot. And I mean, it's sort of the last question that every reporter asks after kind of we run through some of the like, where's Beto now? Where's he standing elected? That kind of piece of it. Some of the stuff that we've gone over is they're like, so snowball's chance in hell? Yeah. Is kind of the question. I don't know. I mean, I, I sort of my way of answering it. I mean, how are you answering that? Um, Probably to some degree depends on my mood, I think. But my <laughs> yeah. general approach has been, look, this is an uphill battle. He starts as an underdog. Right. You know, there's no way around that. Yeah, that's the truth. You know, um, you know, I, I think the odds are are pretty long. And, and, and what I would, you know, and this is, I'm saying then this is sort of where I've arrived and kind of what I would definitely what I think. That if the context we're in right now holds, mm-hmm. then chances are pretty small. Right. Right. And that conversation has to me then two routes, you know, the route that a lot of reporters seem to like is, okay, well then is he done or, yeah. you know, how close does he have to get for him, his career to not be done? And yeah, you know, that we can put a pin in that whole, like the that, preoccupation with better O'Rourke's political path among reporters. Fair enough topic, but, uh, it's funny. I get that too. I've gotten that it's, too. It's, it's like, notched. so so he loses again. His career is over. I'm like, and I'm kind of like, well, no, why? Maybe I don't, don't think know? so. Yeah, and and but then the other is the other piece of that that I think is you know more important is of course is you know the structural conditions. I mean, if if things hold as they are now, if you know the inflation numbers stay on the same trajectory, um, you know, if the economy continues to sort of chug along at 
the pace it's at, if the political dynamic nationally stays more or less the same. And crit, but most critically, if there's no, you know, fundamental external shock or crisis on the ground in Texas, mm -hmm. you know, it's pretty hard to see Greg Abbott's substantial advantages here not carry the day. Right. You know, um, and again, something we beat, you know, we're beating a dead horse on this on the podcast, but, you know, but if something goes wrong and that, you know, and I would say that something really is the power grid. Right. Or, you know, something we should have very much internalized, you know, since the day that, you know, Donald Trump was inaugurated, mm -hmm. you know, things can take a turn that you really don't anticipate. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, and, and a big one. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of big structural things you've got there. We're in a very dynamic environment. And so, and so, you know, I mean, that puts, you know, if you're a Democrat, it puts you in, you know, the kind of unfortunate position of sitting around and waiting for a disaster hap to happen to shake up the race for you. Or I suppose, you know, in the more mundane sense of things, you know, some fundamental mistake by Greg Abbott. I can't really even quite imagine what that would be. Now that's consistent with what I'm saying. Yeah. But it's but it's a testament to Abbott's advantage that and and you know both the nature of the environment right now in which, you know, things that people often might think of as gaffes that people should get you know a lot of grief over, you know, it's not as if Governor Abbott doesn't say things that are kind of sometimes outside the bounds. I mean, you know, maybe as, as another foreshadowing hint, I mean, you know, he congratulated Ryan Guillen the other day when he became a Republican for coming out of, you know, when he switched yep, parties for coming out of the closet. Yeah, I now, you know, and it seems to have gotten kind of made fun of for it a little bit on Twitter or whatever, but it wasn't. It's, it's very hard in the current political climate to imagine what a bipart so, you know, a gap that transcends partisanship. Yeah, exactly. And that's and that's the thing because most of the time the thing that we think of as a gaffe is going to come out in a way that, you know, in most cases like your partisans are going to kind of agree with if just if if right. it worst case tacitly. Yeah, and and in most cases, yeah, or you know, give you such an enor you have such an enormous wellspring of the benefit of the doubt as long as it's not too much of a mistake, you know, that, that, that violates the activist wing of your party. But even that is, you know, I mean, because of the balance of, of the numerical balance yeah. and we're in a campaign environment, I mean, look, we're seeing the, the, the stray too far, but I mean, we're seeing an example of this at the national level right now with this congressman, uh, Paul Gosar in his video that his staff produced yeah. of them you know, his I think, face you know, on yeah, you know, some like anime. murdering AOC or something. I mean, I never did see the video, but it's now you know, and they're voting to send you know to right. to to punish him in the Congress today, and the Democrats will have the majority, and they'll impose some kind of penalty, and all indications that are all but the most apostate Republicans in Congress, and like two of them, mm -hmm. uh, will you know will vote against it. Right, and if anything, he'll probably raise money off of it. Right, and I mean, so I mean, you know, you know, I guess that's my snowball's chance. Answer is, yeah, I, you know, I try borderline admonish reporters to say, like a year out, we shouldn't necessarily be deciding, you know, right, deciding the election. There's a lot of things that could happen, 
But it's also kind of borderline idiotic to not recognize the substantial advantages that Greg Abbott has in this race and where the Republicans are in the state. You know, I want to, you know, I I wanted to move up. And you know what? I'm going to keep going because I pasted the wrong numbers in these notes anyway. So I just noticed. But I mean, I guess I would notice that, you know, the... I am curious what you think about that. You kind of mentioned this obliquely a minute ago or, in, or without much detail a minute ago. You know, the initial positioning of O'Rourke in his first wave of interviews, I think, has been interesting. He's been doing the things that we're talking about, saying that, you know, this can't, you know, and, and it's, you know, for somebody, we think, you know, you mentioned earlier, Beta O'Rourke's earlier kind of uh, image as kind of unorthodox and, you know, all the, you know, all the F-bombs of 2018. Sporting Whataburger Park. Right, all that kind of stuff. And, you know. Standing on tables. Um, but, the, you know, in the early interviews, there's definitely much more, you know, a, a clear, clear messaging and clear pivots away from anticipated critical questions. So, you know, again, our friend, you know, we're in the tank. Our friend Jonathan Tyler asked a lot of very direct questions of him. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did a good job of. I, mean, I think to paraphrase one of Jonathan's questions was something like, "What's what? What's going? What do you expect to be viewed as more authentically Texans saying you'll ban AK-47s or supporting unconcealed carry?" Uh-huh. And O'Rourke kind of said, "Well, you know, that's not. You know, look, I'm still in, I'm still in favor of that and pivoted pretty well to saying, but you know, that's not really about that. It's not about me or that anyway. Well, you know, it's not about my 2020 race. It's about Greg Abbott and how he's governed. And he launched into the, you know, 700 people died during the, you know, during well, the blackouts, you I know, think, the COVID death count. So we see that. And I think that's, you know, that's interesting. And then a day later, the thing that was got the most attention, I think, or has gotten a little bit more attention in the last 24 hours, I think either later on the first day, maybe late yesterday, I'm not sure exactly when this happened. He did uh, an interview with a CBS affiliate, I think, and you know, sort of dinged Joe Biden, the Biden administration for not doing enough on immigration. Yeah. I mean, I think people made a little bit more. It's not like he said, you know, I'm renouncing Joe Biden and all his evil works. Just a little elbow, just a little elbow, a little elbow for distance. You know, I'm dribbling. You're kind of on my back, you know? Well, I think, I mean, you know, when listening to you say this, I mean, the thing that strikes me, you know, if you kind of put all that together as you think, you know, if, if you're O'Rourke, I think right now you're sitting there saying, I want this to be a referendum on Abbott's. He's been in office. Right. Abbott wants to paint me as this other thing. And he's just like, hey, don't listen. Right. <laughs> you know what? You know, I mean, he's trying to say that I'm all these things and that's fine. But, you know, we can just look and say, well, how many Texans have died from COVID? I you think know? the default political term here is that's a distraction, sir. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure Texans will not be distracted. But I did think that, you know, the the Biden border security thing was interesting. I mean, based on our poll numbers that show that, you know, Biden's numbers on border security, including among Democrats, are, you know, bad and still sinking. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things where O'Rourke is probably going to try to play a little bit to some of his strengths here, which is the whole, you know, the El Paso background, the whole, you know, yeah. bi, you know, binational city, you know, this whole thing. And, you know, I think the idea that he could probably bring is, hey, I can authentically deal with this as a Democrat would be what I'd imagine he would try to say. Yeah. I, mean, I, w- I wonder how he'd answer the question. Maybe to sort of see if we can't maybe ask him ourselves somehow. But um, would you spend this much money on border security? If not, why not? And if so, how would you spend it differently than Greg Abbott? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a tough question. <laughs> yeah. That's a challenge. Um, you know, I mean, but I think there are there are potentially opportunities for him there. Um particularly, you know, perhaps among independents, but we'll have to see. 
So let's switch gears for the last few minutes. So, you know, there was also big news. I mean, it, it's kind of, I mean, and some of this was pretty clearly counter-programming by the Republicans. Right. And that, you know, as, you know, proximate to the time that it, that, that, that Beto O'Rourke was announcing that he was going to run for governor, uh, there was a, an event at the Capitol with the House leadership and, and Governor Abbott in which a uh, longtime member of the legislature, Ryan Guillen, uh, announced that he was switching parties. And, you know, that got, you know, I, I, as counter-programming goes, you know, Ryan Guillen was not going to outweigh Beto, Beto O'Rourke with reporters, but, you know, he did pretty well. <laughs> yeah, he did a pretty good job. He did a pretty good job. You know, they 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 made that work, and um, well, it fits the frame, right? I mean, that's that's yeah. the. I mean, it was why it's good. It was good programming on Republicans' part, but it's also it's good programming because it was, you know, kind of you can't avoid it if you're any reporter who's been covering Texas politics and you've been talking about you know the potential inroads that Republicans have made in South Texas among Hispanics. This is just a story that that fits in that frame so well. Right. I mean, the question, sort of, and maybe this is a, I mean, there's almost a question for another podcast, the beginning of a broader question, which is, you know, sort of, how much do you buy that story? Yeah. Because, I mean, I, that's sort of, you know, where I am a little bit on is that it's, you know, it's attractive because it's sort of, you know, it's counter attitudinal. People don't expect it. And, but it also, you know, I would say, you know, not again, not to get too far down this road, but like we've talked a lot about how people's expectations about the Hispanic electorate and the realities of the Hispanic electorate are pretty right. different. And especially people kind of looking in from the outside. And so, you know, so two, so that's one contextual piece that I think we might have to save for another yeah. week. Another will also point out, you know, South Texas, not a huge population center in the states. I mean, some parts of it for sure, but not, you know. Yeah, I mean, my favorite, you know, sort of reminder of that is how, you know, after the 2020 election, people were just going, reporters, who are people, but not all people, but there was... You know, a big, you know, the example that was in all of these stories was Zapata County. Right. Right. Zapata County went Republican for the first time when we can, we went down there and we talked to people and they, you know, and, you know, we're talking about well less than 100,000 voters. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, well less. <laughs> well less. And I don't have the right exact number in front of me, so I don't want to put out the wrong number, but, you know, I believe it's in the tens. Right. And so that's just not. You know, and I think you're right. I mean, and we've said this on here. There's a there's a kind of an imaginary baseline of Latino support for Republicans, which in the imagination of reporters and outside observers is much lower than it actually is in actuality. Yeah. And that's the thing. So you look at this and you say, like, well, you know, there's a redistricting process and now Representative Guillen is in a much more Republican right. district. And he was already in a district that I think voted for Trump beforehand and he still won. He's now in a more Republican district. Right. Uh, the district he's in now is is a Trump twenty five. The redrawn district would would be a Trump twenty five district, right? And so you know, I mean, one of the things that I always wonder about this, and this is sort of this is like an existential question. Maybe we're getting near the end here, but it's like you know, how often does it work to manifest something like this? You know what I mean? So like well, the idea it depends. That you, you know, he, and, you know, yeah. I mean, there's a bunch of yeah. There's a bunch of different things going on here. You know, it's you know, it's a cycle right after redistricting when this is most right. likely to happen. And you know, there've been rumors this is going on. You know, Ryan Guillen, if you look at, you know, Mark Mark Jones' ideological rankings is the most conservative, you know, or the least liberal, yeah. sorry, Mark, the least liberal right. um, Democrat. uh, Democratic, you know, House member, et cetera. So, you know, there's not, you know, and, and, and in all the, you know, the talk around town about who might switch, 
he was the number one candidate yeah. all along. Right. Right. Um, and, you know, it will be interesting. Not that, you know, we think of things wholly transactional, transactionally. Although but useful. it will be interesting to see what he gets out of this. Yes, it will be. Say. Um, you know, the other big news, you know, in, in Text Ledge and, you know, at the intersection of hashtag Text Ledge and hashtag Texas 2020, which I, you know, maybe I just had, didn't have my ear to the ground, but was something of a surprise to me is that House member Michelle Beckley has joined the lieutenant, the race for the nomination to be the Democrats candidate for lieutenant governor in 2020. So she joins Mike Collier, who's run twice and was already, you know, had an irritant, you know, shall we say, um, with the entrance of Matthew Dowd, political commentator and former political consultant and communications consultant. You know, I think this was greeted with some degree of surprise. Yeah. <laughs> in a lot of corners. Now, again, redistricting dynamic yeah you know she had been treated fairly roughly in the redistricting process and was a little bit without a home and had considered you know running for a congressional district in her north texas you know and, and that was a close district she was in anyway she was already yeah. in for a fight she was going to run for a congressional seat that congressional seat got redrawn that left her outside of the border uh, of the district and so now she's going to throw in her throw her hat in for lieutenant governor. She, and she becomes, you know, a, an interesting dynamic in that race if she stays in and, you know, exerts any presence in that, you know, she will be pretty substantially near, as I can tell, to the left of both of the present candidates. And not uh, an older white man. And not and not an older white guy. But, I mean, it's, it's interesting because on the one hand, you'd say, you know, we just did this polling before she announced, you know, we asked fave, unfave items on Collier and Dowd. And kind of the main takeaway from that that I think is worth knowing is just that, you know, most Democrats don't know who these people are. Right. This is the name. I mean, even for Collier, who's run twice, you know, 70 percent of potential Democratic primary voters don't have an opinion of him. Right. And so you have to assume that Beckley starts even further unknown than he does. But in some ways, you know, frankly, and, you know, not, that might be her advantage. I mean, yeah. in, some, in some way, I mean, what you're laying out here actually is the fact that, you know, a couple, you know, choice endorsements from some left leaning groups. The fact that, you know, she's not a white man, which, you know, in the Democratic primary yeah. would probably help her out. You know, as we talk about it, the case kind of presents itself, although it still is a little. And for anybody, anybody of a certain generation, you know, we'll just say, you know, all of a sudden, you know, people start thinking us about a sissy Farenthal scenario. Now, that didn't turn out well for the Democrats, but yeah. but nonetheless, it was an interesting development. And we should also note, I mean, in terms of the things that we tend to pay attention to a lot, you know, there's been a lot, there's going to be a lot of turnover in the House. I mean, we haven't had any you know, primary elections or any general election, which, you know, allows for candidates to actually lose. Right. At least in the primary this time. Right. And, you know, we've got 22 House vacancies and four Senate vacancies right now. Feels like a lot. It's a lot. It feels like a lot, you know, putting in the Senate because it is. Yeah. And um, so I think this is something to really keep keep an eye on because, you know, of course, the top of the ticket races, these are all, you know, they matter a lot. You know, but those 22 House seats, you know, that, you know, those 22 exits from the House also mean, you know, 22 open races. Yes. You know, both in the primary and the general election. What it portends is, you know, as we were talking about 22, 22, 2022 being a very long election year, from my perspective, it means in all likelihood that election night 2022 is going to be a late one and is going to be very exciting with a lot of turnover and a lot to track between now and then. Yeah, that's right. So with that, I'll thank Josh for being here. Thank our excellent crew in the Liberal Arts Development Studio. 
in the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas. We've referenced, as always, a bunch of data today and a blog post besides. You'll find all that at texaspolitics.utexas.edu. We'll be out next week for Thanksgiving, but probably back for at least a podcast or two before the year is out. So enjoy the rest of the week. Have a good holiday. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.